Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome everyone to the first event in the Shifting Points of View series presented by Word Christchurch and the Christchurch Arts Festival. This is Fail Safe, Fail Better, an evening of stories, and what a lineup we have for you. Six fantastic speakers, Leanne Dalziel, Dr. Hannah O'Regan, Victor Roger, Witi Himaira, Clementine Ford, and Glenn Calhoun, who will all regale you with tales of failure. I was really tempted to make a really bad rhyme then, but I won't. Regalia tells a failure, anyway. Um, first, I'd like to thank some organisations who have helped make shifting points of view happen. Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, News Talk ZB, and Clementine's For Clementine Ford's visit is supported by the copyright agency Cultural Fund, Fund of Australia. Um, I'd like to also acknowledge Mana Whenua, Naitahu, and the fantastic support that they've given our organisation. A big thank you to our patrons, supporters, and season pass holders, and to Craig Cooper and his team at the fabulous Christchurch Arts Festival. I hope you'll all be getting in amongst it over the coming weeks. They've been a joy to collaborate with. And just to note that the event may go on slightly longer than is advertised in the programme, and we expect to finish at about 8.30. If you have to leave before the finish, we promise not to glare and point. Um, in fact, we can't actually see you because of the lights anyway, so you're safe. Uh, now to the topic of the night. Is failure ever a complete failure? Or is it a necessary building block to success? Samuel Beckett said, ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again. Fail again, fail better. Failure is particularly close to most writers' hearts. When we write novels, for example, they really pour out of our fingertips in perfectly formed prose. Instead, we're most likely to end up with what looks like a lump of clay more than a masterpiece. But from that lump of clay, we sculpt the final product. The first novel I wrote was a failure in the most basic sense of the word. I spent a year of my life writing it for a master's in creative writing. I made a half-hearted attempt to try and get it published, but I knew that I could do better, and it was soundly rejected as I knew it would be. It was an okay novel, but who wants to make their debut with something that's just okay? I'd written the kind of novel that I thought I should be writing instead of the kind of novel I wanted to read, which is perhaps the biggest epiphany I've ever had in my career. So I shoved that manuscript deep into the darkest recesses of my desk drawer, and I started again with an idea I'd had about a butterfly collector who returns home from an expedition to a far-off country, unable to speak. I'd been writing what I knew, but I found it was far more interesting for me and for everyone else to start writing about what I didn't know. Many people said to me, oh, what a pity, what a waste of all that time, writing a novel that will never be published. But how wrong they were. I could never have written my first published novel without first writing an unpublished one. I've always said that the best way to learn to write a novel is to just do it, to find the way that you personally can do it, because any amount of how-to books can only show you one way, not necessarily the right way. That you need, that you need to discover for yourself, and face it, you'll probably fail miserably at it for a while. Now, I've just come back from the Edinburgh Book Festival where I was fortunate to hear Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's first minister, interview feminist writer and novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. An audience member asked for advice on how to build resilience, and Sturgeon replied, the best way to build resilience is to allow yourself room to fail, 
to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes. Of course, knowing I was going to be hosting this event, my ears pricked up and my notebook came out. And I also took a photo and sent it that night to our first speaker for inspiration. Her worship the mayor needs no introduction, but since her time as an MP for Christchurch Central and Christchurch East, she's been a champion for our city and a great supporter of the arts. Last year, she was among the first to buy a Word Christchurch Festival pass, attending everything and tweeting with enthusiasm about it. And she's appeared in at least two of our Nyomarsh crime debates, always dropping the filthiest jokes of the night. <laughs> Please welcome the Mayor of Christchurch, Leanne Dalziel. Uh, kia ora koutou katoa, and now that uh, expectations have been um, raised or lowered, whatever your perspective might be, um, I would like to begin thanking Rachel King for inviting me to participate in this event tonight, but I can't do that. I've actually fretted about this evening ever since she invited me to speak, hence the request for inspiration last weekend. Um, I, last weekend I actually decided that I, it was about time that I got on with it, but after hours of procrastination I was back to asking myself why on earth I had agreed to speak. I had actually only wanted to meet the panellists I didn't already know, <laughs> but I'm seriously sure I could have found an easier way. So I put off writing my notes until last night. Writing about failure just before you fall asleep is not a good idea and something I don't recommend. But, I mean, procrastination is a real issue for me, so much so that I bought a book on it and I still haven't got round to reading it. <laughs> so why was I dreading tonight to speak of failure when there is a perception that people who dare to put themselves um, up for public office should be anything but? It's counterintuitive and closer to an election, potentially counterproductive, as we've recently seen. I should say that despite being born and raised in Christchurch, I am not of the old school in any way, shape or form. Even being born into the Catholic faith put me into the wrong, onto the wrong side of the fence. But it has at least given me a constant friend, guilt. It is, <laughs> it is a distressing but also strangely comforting um, you know, a feeling to believe that everything is, after all, my own fault. Um, it should make it easier to talk about failure, but it actually doesn't. Someone with my background was never going to find it easy being a politician. The idea of standing on a street corner and telling people that I was the best person for the job would have been anathema to me growing up. I remember when I was an MP, a young MP listening to a conference, a conference speaker talk about the imposter syndrome and a measure described as not good enough, that was me. And deep down, it still is. So failures. I've had a few, but then again, not so few to mention. There's a song in there somewhere. Um, Samuel Beckett, as we've heard, gave that powerful message. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. It's the same message Henry Ford gave when he said failure is the only opportunity more intelligently to begin again. Um, Thomas Edison said, I haven't failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Um, there are many iterations of the same 
thought more recently, there is no innovation and creativity without failure, period. I've been inspired by reading and hearing the stories of others to know that within failure, there is a platform for success, if you look. J.K. Rowling, in her famous Harvard commencement address, said this, why, so why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena I believed I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive and I still had a daughter whom I adored and I had an old typewriter and a big idea and so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. I tell people who haven't seen this address um, to Google it and watch it. She not only speaks about the benefits of failure, she talks about the power of imagination not in terms of creative writing, but in terms of imagining yourself in the shoes of others, the roots of empathy, the sharing the lives of those whose lives you will never experience. And that was all driven off the back of her experience working for Amnesty International. But back to failure, she said, you might never fail on the scale I did, but some failure in life is inevitable. It is impossible to live without failing at something unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. I really wish I knew this a few years ago when I started out. It was 1995, my story begins. My husband had left me after seven years of marriage at the beginning of the year. It's hard to cope, up, cope with a breakup. It's even harder when you're in the, in the public eye. No one tells you that it's really hard to get a date when you're a member of parliament. <laughs> then at the end of that year, I was starting a relationship with Rob, who I'm still with today. So without the failure of my first marriage, who knows what direction my life would have taken. But my real story starts Christmas Eve the following year, 1996. I was the opposition spokesperson on health. Labor having been rejected by New Zealand First and its lengthy negotiations between the two major parties, both of which were capable of forming a government under the brand new MMP system. Why does this sound so strangely familiar today? Anyway, back to Christmas Eve. A report was laid at my Christchurch Central Office door. It was called Patients Are Dying. I took it home with me to read over a holiday that ended up not quite being the holiday I had hoped for. The report showed that a number of patients had died at Christchurch Hospital in circumstances where their deaths were preventable. Warnings, warnings were given, warnings were ignored, and people died. That is what the report said. People who were close to me know how much I invested in getting to the bottom of what had happened. Most people do not know that this included standing alongside the families as they went through the coroner's inquests. I mention this because there was a lawyer who said something that has remained with me ever since. He said that the coroner's court was not a court of blame, it was a court of understanding. This is so relevant as to why we must seek to understand all that has happened here in Christchurch, not to attribute blame, but to learn crucial lessons. And to do that, we must ensure that learning from failure is regarded as just as, if not more, than, um, more important than learning from success. 
There should have been a commission of inquiry into what happened at Christchurch Hospital, but the then Minister of Health would not agree. Instead, the brand new Health and Disability Commissioner was commissioned to review what had happened, but by then I had completely hit the wall. I had devoted so much to getting the inquiry, I simply crashed. I know Neil Young said it's better to burn out than to fade away, but I'm not so sure about that now. I had become so determined about the need for a commission of inquiry that I failed to see the wood for the trees. The stent report, as it had became known, was an indictment on a managerially focused health system oriented predominantly as it was on issues of efficiency, funding, and financial performance. Sounds familiar too. Plus a change and all that stuff. They may be important, but never at the expense of public safety. The explanation for the burnout that I offered as I left Parliament was that the core of my inner being was rocked by discovering that the same ethical approach that guides clinicians and health professionals in their work did not apply to those managing the public health system in such an environment. That's true, but actually what I failed to do, what I failed to do was to keep sufficient distance to retain objectivity in a highly charged political environment where people had died. And this was on top of a failed marriage and a failed campaign to get into government. And tonight is probably the first time that I've ever said that out loud to anyone. So thanks for the free therapy session. I feel so much better now. And the good news is that I may have crashed for all of those reasons, but what doesn't kill you does, in fact, make you stronger. I've been placed under extreme personal and political pressure since the earthquake happened, and I don't think I would be standing here today as the Mayor of Christchurch if I hadn't been through that experience 20 years ago. I'm failing much better now. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Hana O'Regan is nationally and internationally recognised for her expertise in Te Reo Māori. Her publications include Kaitahu Tribal Stories and Histories for Rakatahi, and she's published an anthology of Māori poetry, Kupu, with co-author Charisma Rangipunga. Last year during our festival, she led an Indigenous Writers' Workshop along with three of our visiting international authors, who all told me that they found the experience life-changing. Hannah is a mother, daughter, sister, storyteller, writer, composer, activist, and corporate warrior. Always she is kaitahu. Please welcome Dr. Hannah O'Regan. Kia koutou katoa, kua whakarau i ka mai tēnei pō, nei rā te mihi atu, kia koutou. Koutou i haramai tawhiti, aku hoa nei, Tēnei te mihi te reo o kaituahuriri o ngaitahu e toro atu ana kia koutou. Nau mai, tauti mai, haere mai ki tēnei wahi. Hello everybody. I can't possibly fail because failure is the topic. But I can fail better than you. <laughs> to come up with a, this topic today in a time that um, one say one feels slightly vulnerable um, and putting yourself on stage and talking to people about the things that are actually close to your heart is no 
mean feat. So thank you, Leanne. Can I just say that many similarities that I won't actually draw upon now um, are apparent in our conversations. Okay. Right, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Finally, the opportunity to speak about something that I'm really good at. <laughs> How to fail. Please let me indulge something I prepared earlier. I have so much to say on this topic. I actually feel like I may have been set up to fail here tonight. How could I possibly provide a synopsis of my experiences of failing in 10, maybe nine minutes when I am genetically predisposed to verbosity? On both my Irish and Māori sides, whilst also having the added challenge of having so many examples to share. Tonight, in the nine minutes I may have left, I will try to take you on a short journey of personal reflection as we consider how to fail safer and better, and to do so at a time in my life where the reminder to myself may be a timely one. At times like this, times when you feel you have failed, the lessons learned in decades gone by can become a lifeline of hope and help as they come rushing back into one's consciousness from their hiding places, those hiding places named avoidance and denial. The patterns of the past, ones that you often don't want to see, seem to land squarely at your feet with bright eyes looking up at you, awaiting your attention. Well, tonight and now, they have mine, full and undivided. But this time, I'm not trying to ignore them or beating myself up for being in that space again. The story that these lessons learn tell is a story of resilience and perseverance, of grind and grit, and importantly, of getting there in the end. I may wish that I could have done the learning without the pain. Right now, that idea seems pretty attractive, but I'm not sure what else might have been lost along the way, if that had been the case. Knowing and naming the lessons learned can sometimes soften the fall. Understanding those lessons can hasten their recovery. If you're going to fail, if you're going to fall, you may as well make it a bloody good one and get something out of it while you're doing it. So what, my friends, does a good fall look like? Something I prepared earlier. The lessons aren't all about the point and the act of failure. The times where things seem to collapse around me and the frustration and disappointment when they took hold, they were times where I felt inadequate and pathetic, or just not up to the task at hand. But the lessons are actually found in the before and in the after of the fall. Those lessons also traverse different worlds and different contexts. They're not confined to the tasks and experiences of writing and composition. They can apply to any part of your personal, your professional, or your cultural life, as too can the strategies of overcoming them. The benefit of looking back at past failures can help to illuminate the patterns, the context, and experiences that led up to the point where it all went wrong or just got too hard. But importantly, the after story, the corridor about the climb back up, the rising up, they help 
to remind me about the parts of me that were able to draw strength and were able to get through. They act like a cheerleading squad on the side of the road, holding up words of encouragement and shouting me on, shouting me upwards, shouting me forward. A younger Hannah didn't see them in quite the same way. She missed the banners and the pom-poms, instead only seeing crowds along the road with eyes that screamed, I told you so, you're not good enough, and what the hell did you expect? She felt like they were waiting for her to do the walk of shame down the road again. Back then, the road seemed a hell of a lot longer and wider. The walk was more taxing on my emotions and my self-esteem. Failing at something, especially when you'd really tried hard and really wanted it, sucked. Sorry, there's not a better word than sucked. The journey to move from that space of disappointment or regret to get over the finish line and to get to the point where I was over the failure and ready to try again seemed to take forever. Old Hannah, or perhaps maybe we should say older Hannah, still doesn't particularly like the sense of failing and the feeling that comes along with it. It still cuts, it still hurts. There is still ma or embarrassment, but the road no longer seems like a marathon. Older Hannah looks at the previous after stories and can recall the post-fall tales where I did stuff, I won stuff, I wrote stuff, I achieved stuff after the fail. Older Hannah notices that the I told you so eyes become less dominant on the sideline and affect her less. Their voices may still be heard, but the pom-poms become increasingly evident and start getting their groove on, helping to put a spring back in her step of a very weary tread. Older Hannah knows that I can succeed by redefining what I count as success and have done so in my own after story. I have spent decades now testing, refining and enhancing my own narrative and the strategies I know have helped me to start again and get up. Now we don't really need to count how often this has happened, let alone with marriages, but suffice to say that practice makes perfect. Knowing I can get up and have moved beyond it makes the failure more bearable when, you, when it is in your midst. What has made failing safer for me has been my writing. Writing has been what I've always turned to, to help me navigate my after story. The key, though, has been in the relationship that I have developed with writing and understanding and trusting its purpose. Knowing that my writing has a purpose and allowing myself the freedom to explore it, whether it takes the form of poems, waiata or song, prose, rivers of words or chapters in books, stories or histories, or Hannah's view on the world, it helps me to turn my fall into a step forward. I have found that when trying to write a chapter or an essay, a thesis or a presentation, and I get to that place where the stress levels rise, the anxiety grows, and the hours slip by with little to show, that I stop and I write. If dribble comes out, then it was dribble that needed to get out. 
If the words merge with tears on the page or the keyboard, then that is what was meant to happen. That is what they were meant to do. The process of writing and trusting in its purpose has helped me to make sense of my thoughts, my beliefs, my heart, my hurt, and my dreams. I allow myself a detour of words and feelings and frustrations. These usually take the form of poems. They don't actually have to be good. They don't have to be published. God knows I wouldn't want to impose most of them on the way to public. But those words brought out from the confusion and emotion of mind and heart and into an open realm where they can take shape, be ordered, be deleted or extended, they help to validate the time and the experience in that moment. And they validate me. In Christchurch, as Leanne has alluded, uh, has alluded to, over the last seven years, we've become experts at navigating detours. When the road you knew or thought you knew was in front of you no longer exists, even if it did the day before, and only Cantabrians would know this, just stopping isn't an option. We have learned to expect that these challenges are going to exist, and they, we have become masters of the back roads, of new routes, road cones that give us a heads up that the journey is about to change our, our every day. And I write. In that moment, the failure of not achieving the earlier task is met by the success of another one. I provide myself a new schema, a distraction that I can feel good about, even if it takes a while to feel good about it. It does mean that my poems often set up their temporary shelters in the darkest spots along the road of my journey, and sometimes they build whole apartment blocks before the journey can resume. But that's their purpose. They help me fail safe. At times, I have only needed a lean-to on the side of the road, and at other times, I have needed to write myself a fully fortified parasite. But as the time passes and I reflect on the after-stories, they become a photo album of my journey that led me to here and made me me. And I can see that I did fall, and it did hurt, and I remember that I cried and I got angry, screaming and breaking on the inside and out. And then I built my whare of words and I moved on and I got through. Knowing and believing that you can get through makes the detour less frightening and overwhelming. It can help the shoulder go a little further back with each turn of the page of the album. And you never know, there may even be a time when there are enough of those poems, broken, asked, or otherwise, that can be woven together and can become a book. And so I write, I trust, and I find my way out eventually. I have a feeling, if my past is anything to go by, there may be a fair few falls awaiting the future, Hannah. At least my photo album of my journey will be a bloody colorful one.
Thank you, Hannah. Well, when you, when you ask people, you invite people to take part in an event like this and you give them, you know, such a, a kind of a loose brief, really, right about failure, um, it's kind of a little bit of a lucky dip kind of grab bag of what we're going to get. And so far, um, you know, I'm really appreciating the personal nature of the stories that we're hearing and the effort that's gone in, and I can't wait to hear what's coming next. Um, so our next speaker is Victor Roger. Um, Victor is one of the country's most acclaimed and fearless playwrights, and his work features regularly in arts festivals around the country. Two years ago, the Christchurch Arts Festival featured the bold theatre piece Black Faggot, and you can catch his developing show, Christchurch Almighty, tomorrow and Sunday at the Gloucester Room in the Isaac Theatre Royal. He will also be appearing with Rennie Edo Lodge in Tuesday night's Shifting Points of View event, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Among his many accolades, Victor last year held the Robbie Burns Fellowship in Dunedin, and this year is the Writer-in-Residence at Victoria University. Please welcome Victor Roger. When it comes to F words, there is one F word that is very close to my heart. It's short to the point, it knows how to get the job done, it's not messing around, it's not here to play. And yes, I am, of course, referring to the word fuck. Now, I bet some of you thought I was going to do something clever there, a bit of bait and switch, where I made you think I was going to use another F word at the last minute. Yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> fuck, 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 Look, I employ that word regularly in my work as a playwright. If I had a dollar for every time I've used it, I could probably retire right now. I fucking love it. My mother, on the other hand, that's another story. The regular employment of strong language in my plays is one of the main reasons why she chooses not to see my work. Or should I say, from her point of view, endure it. You weren't raised in a gutter, she will say, one hand on her chest with equal parts admonishment, mystification, and sorrow. I know, I will say somewhat sympathetically, but look where it's got me. Seriously, this year I'm the writer in residence of Victoria. Last year I was the Burns Fellow at Otago. As the great Charlie Sheen once said, hashtag winning. There's another F word, though, that's also reasonably close to my heart, and sometimes this F word makes me use the other F word. This time I am, of course, talking about failure, the reason we are all here tonight. We're meant to talk about failure for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes? That's hilarious. Uh, well, you can already see I failed to stop my mother from clutching her metaphorical pearls because of the language I use in my plays. I don't love anyone in the world more than I love my mother, and yet the language that I choose to use in my work upsets her because of the way she perceives it reflects on her. Therefore, I am causing upset to the one person I love most in this world. What can I say? I'm a monster. That's failure right there, right? And yet, I couldn't have it any other way. This is who I am as a writer. I'm a potty-mouthed playwright. Mum actually asked me about three years ago, can't you write a nice play? <laughs> and I said to her, sorry, Mum, it's just not in me. 
So on the sliding scale of failure, that example is somewhat mild, but trust me, I've got more examples, plenty more, personal and professional. How about that time as a young cadet reporter here in Christchurch when I got a court charge wrong in a story and the chief court reporter took great pleasure in telling me that everyone at the court was now calling me Al Thicko. For the next few weeks after that, every time I walked into the newsroom, I literally felt like I had a giant X all over my body. What about that time in London when I interviewed for a journalism job on a magazine and exaggerated exactly how much German I could speak? <laughs> yeah only to then have to translate a Time article from English into German on the spot. Here, dash, 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 ist, dash, 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 das, dash, 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 ach mein Gott. And how can I ever forget that wonderful time in Cardiff when I was acting in a play about the need to preserve language and the only language the audience was speaking back to myself and the rest of the cast? was pure, unadulted hatred. I mean, they didn't boo out loud, but they didn't have to. They were all booing on the inside, and loudly, trust me. It's almost as bad as that play I had to do when I was a student at Toifakari New Zealand Drama School in Wellington. When I had to wear a silver lycra jumpsuit, which on me looked like sausage casing. <laughs> sausage casing that was about to split in half. Yeah, I couldn't even look at myself before I went on stage. And uh, yeah, they made me get on stilts as well. I've been fired from a job once or twice. Make that three times. I've literally run away from a job once or twice. Actually, make that three times too. So look, I've had plenty of failure in my life. We know each other quite well, failure. And the thing is, I've learned to roll with it. Failure is a part of life. And failure can be fabulous. I think failure generally happens for a reason, and the reason may not be immediately clear, but there'll be one. The trick is to recognize what the reason or the lesson is. And in that, I must admit, I've sometimes failed too. But here are a couple of examples of failure that have revealed their true meanings in retrospect. Example number one. In the early 2000s, I came up with an idea for a play called My Name is Gary Cooper. Now, just in case there are any young people in the audience who don't recognize the name, and by young, I mean anyone under 48, <laughs> Gary Cooper was a very popular American movie star in the first half of the 20th century. He won a couple of Best Actor Oscars, and for most people, he's best known for the film High Noon. But in Samoa, he's more famous for shooting a movie there in the 1950s called Return to Paradise, a film my late uncle Mikhail was actually in. My idea for the play, an illegitimate half-Samoan man travels to Los Angeles in 1973 to get revenge on his Balangi American father who left his Samoan mother behind after the making of Return to Paradise with devastating consequences. I rattled off 60 or so pages very quickly once I had the idea. The New Zealand Festival of the Arts in Wellington got very excited and scheduled it to be part of the festival. But then someone asked me, what are you trying to say? And everything ground to a halt. That question stumped me for five years, which meant that the play didn't get to be part of the festival. But five years later, I suddenly understood what I was trying to say, and I quickly finished the play. So physically, the play took about two or three weeks to write, 
but that was over a five-year period. My Name is Gary Cooper was first produced in 2007 with my regular leading man, Robbie Mangasiva, alongside Jennifer Wood-Leland and my good friend, arts laureate, Anapella Polataivao, who is in the audience tonight. Here's the thing about that story in terms of failure. I failed to meet the initial deadline I had for My Name is Gary Cooper. Well, truth be told, I've failed to meet just about every deadline that's been placed in front of me. But in this case, that failure to meet that deadline led to My Name is Gary Cooper being pulled from the festival lineup. I was disappointed at the time, for sure. But ultimately, I'm glad they pulled it. Because I don't believe I could have written the script I ended up with when I was meant to write it. It came when it came. It just happened to be five years late. But as it stands, My Name is Gary Cooper is one of my most highly regarded plays and certainly one of the works I'm proudest of. My failure to initially deliver it in time is ultimately a large part of the reason it was so successful. Example number two. In 2004, I was accepted into a scriptwriting course in Amsterdam at an institution called The Binger. I moved to Amsterdam to study thanks to the good people at the New Zealand Film Commission. Previously, I'd only spent a couple of nights in Amsterdam in the early 90s when I got completely stoned off my face. But actually, living in Amsterdam was a total pleasure, especially after my friend's cousin, who was about to move to Cyprus, generously opened up his rather large and rather flash apartment to me, free of charge. I was writing scripts for Shortland Street at the time, so life was pretty sweet. I hung out in Amsterdam, did my work, and occasionally jumped on the train to Paris to hang out with some good friends down there. Life was comfortable and enjoyable. Heel goed, as the Dutch themselves might say. But then, after about nine or ten months, the party came to a sudden end. The apartment was sublet to a Canadian couple, and I was sort of homeless and sort of broke. And so I left the apartment in Amsterdam and flew home to Christchurch, where I had to sleep in my parents' conservatory on a single bed that sagged under my weight, and I had to scramble for work, and I had an awful lot of time on my hands to feel sorry for myself and pine for the glamorous life I had left behind. How had it come to this? I plotted my next move, getting the creative New Zealand Fulbright to the University of Hawaii as the Pacific writer in residence. Perfect, the answer to all my problems, well, for three months at least. Only that year, I lost out on the Fulbright to my cousin, the award-winning poet Tusiata Avia, who is also in the audience tonight. Now, I love my cousin. No, I do love my cousin, and I love her work, so I was genuinely happy that she got the Fulbright instead of me. But at the same time, I mean, you remember the first F word that I used at the start of this talk? Yeah, I used that word quite a lot. However, the next year, I was indeed successful in getting that Fulbright to Hawaii. And because I got the Fulbright that year, I ended up meeting two fellow Afakasi Samoans, Seneva and Shane. Seneva was from Oregon, Shane was from Utah. They were both American born and raised, but we all had one Samoan parent and one Balangi parent, and we all lay somewhere differently on whatever you'd call a Samoan version of the Kinsey scale, which measured identity as opposed to sexuality. Seneva, that sardonic little black rain cloud, was the little sister I never wanted, and exactly the little sister I absolutely needed when I got to Honolulu. We scowled at exactly the same stuff. We dogged exactly the same people. She's truly become a significant figure in my life. 
As for Shane, well, while we are still friendly, we aren't so close. However, it's through Shane that I was introduced to another Afakasi Samoan American called Mike from Los Angeles. Mike is essentially my spiritual twin, except he knows how to drive and has a full-time job. <laughs> he can quote Mummy Dearest off by heart and eats about as much chop suey as I can. I have a small handful of people in my life around the world who I consider absolute rocks. People I know who I can depend on no matter what. Suniva and Mike are two of them. I couldn't imagine my life without them. And the thing is, if I'd actually succeeded in getting the Fulbright that year, I came back from Amsterdam when I really wanted it, I probably would never have met them. So that failure to get that Fulbright the first time, I cherished that failure because of what it gave me. A rock in Oregon and a rock in Los Angeles. So those are just two examples of failure that led to success. In closing, here is something profound I have learned about failure. About three or four years ago, when I came home to Christchurch from Auckland, I came for an extended cup of tea and a lie down. Now, sometimes you can fail on an absolutely spectacular level, both personally and professionally, as I did. The thing is that some failure can end up being what I like to call the worst best thing. It's the worst, best thing because of what that failure can teach you. And after you failed, particularly spectacularly as I did, and when you were eventually standing on top of the mountain, looking back down at that valley you never thought you'd climb out of, surely there can be no sweeter view. But that's another story. Thank you very much. Thank you, Victor. Witi Ihimaira, my first and perhaps most influential creative writing teacher, is one of Aotearoa's most esteemed writers, a fact that was recently recognised with the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction and the Ockham Book Award for Nonfiction for his recent memoir, Māori Boy, which can both be added to a long list of awards and accolades. Witi has two recent books. He has edited, along with Tina Makareti, The Magnificent Black Marks on a White Page, a stunning collection of oceanic stories for the 21st century, featuring short fiction, novel excerpts, poetry and artworks from established and new writers, such as Selena Tusitala-Marsh, Courtney Cena Meredith, Paula Morris, Patricia Grace, and Christchurch's own Tusiata Abia, Nick Lowe, and Victor Roger. It's available for sale at the UBS stand, and I'm sure both Witty and Victor will happily sign copies for you. Witty's other new book, Sleep Standing, blends fact and fiction about the Battle of Oroko, which took place near Te Awamutu in April 1864. The battle pitched 300 Māori men, women and children against some 1,700 colonial soldiers. Sleep Standing comprises a novella narrated by a 16-year-old Māori boy alongside non-fiction narratives from Māori eyewitnesses together with waiata, images and a Māori translation by Hemi Kelly. It is sure to be a fantastic addition to the Ihimaira canon. You please welcome Witi Ihimaira. So I've learned some new F words. 
thank you all for coming out tonight. So, tuia te rangi, tuia te papa, tuia tato, te here tangata. Inga iwi o kaitahu, te fan, te penua, o te potiki, totahi, tena koto. Well, look, you know what? I mean, fail safe, fail, be, fail better, eh? Like um, um, one of the other writers here, and when Rachel King asked me if I would be one of the sorry, pathetic, pitiful, deplorable, contemptible, worthless bastards, or the other B word references referencing the female gender, but I'm much too much of a gentleman to use it. Well, when she asked me to join the others in laying out our litany of failures, tragedies, piteous and lament lamentable reversals of fortune before you, I said yes without really thinking, just like Leanne. And then just last week I thought I'd better hurry up and prepare to pick a couple of dastardly, distinguished by disaster decisions I have made. And I realized that I was in deep doggy doo-doo. I hate admitting to failure. In thinking of Rachel's offer, I was reminded of a cartoon of a spouse looking at a wedding photograph of, a, of the happy couple they made when they were young, so pretty or studly. And now with four screaming kids all under the age of five, the husband a couch potato who once had fabulous hair and now has one, and the wife, big bummed, harassed by the children and farting surreptitiously in bed. You know we all do it. <laughs> and underneath the caption, well, it sounded like a good idea at the time. Because I realized that there hasn't just been one or two terrible failures in my career, like the trail in a sea, but that my entire career itself has been a failure. So last week, I was in an awful state, crying out to God and to all of the atua of Maoridom to strike me down so that I could telephone Rachel to say, I'm sick, darling. <laughs> or, darling, I'm calling from heaven as I'm dead. <laughs> but here I am, and I'm fucking well stuck with it. That is words. Well, as Anne Landers has famously said, things are always darkest before they become totally black, witty. <laughs> Well, you see, my failure is that I wasn't supposed to be a writer. <laughs> I was supposed to be somebody else. A banker comes to mind because they make money. A lawyer because they make money. A rock star or mega movie star because they make money. Like Marlon Brando in the movie On the Waterfront, I could have been somebody. But instead I am this. This piteous, piss-poor, paltry, pitiful, pathetic object of derision, you see abjectly presenting himself before you, the writer who wasn't supposed to be one. I mean, anybody who had read my first short story, written admittedly when I was 10, would have known that if I got involved in literature, that literature was headed for disaster. Once upon a time, there was a princess, locked in a tall tower guarded by a fierce dragon. And every day, every day she would see a handsome prince ride by on his white horse and she would yell, help me, help me, save me from this dragon. But because the princess was so ugly, the prince on his white horse would take one look, go yuck and keep on riding by <laughs> to rescue the more beautiful princess further down the road, who looks a bit like Rachel. Day after day this would happen, yet another prince on his white horse, and yet another rejection as he looked at the princess, riding gaily by until one day the princess got so sick and tired of waiting that she went out and married the dragon. 
Well, some people would say that my fiction has not improved and that I didn't know anything about biology either and therefore about matters of sex. Hmm. Well, fortunately, I'm among people of Christchurch. You don't know about sex either. I think it was your library which put my novel, Nights in the Gardens of Spain, in the gardening section. <laughs> and then, when advised it wasn't about gardening, they put it in the section about Spain. Well, and then when I was at high school, I was so slow. My career took ages. My father, Tom Smiler, Jr., used to use encouraging language like, well, you're just like the tortoise, son, slow and steady will get you to the finish line. And then I took five years doing a BA at Auckland University before they excluded me for non-completion. My grades were mostly C for coconut, though there was a solitary B- minus for English. And by then, Dad was the only person waiting on the finish line. The others got sick and tired of waiting, like my nanny Minnie. I finally actually completed my BA degree at Victoria, Wellington, nine years later. And Dad wasn't there any longer, but he did send a telegram, congratulations, stop, but even the tortoise didn't take this long. <laughs> Which reminds me, while I'm at it, that I shouldn't have become an academic either with such a brilliant career of rapid descent. But I became a professor of English at the same university that excluded me. What the hell happened? That's not the end of it. I have to admit that apart from English, Hannah, I also talk history and Māori language. <sighs> this is so embarrassing. I hide my face from you all in shame, humiliation, degradation and ignominy. Well, I got history one, but after three tries at history two, I was kicked out of class, gone down the road, eat my dust. And humiliation of hum humiliations, Hannah, I couldn't get past Māori one at either Auckland or Victoria. I struggled for five years before realizing I just didn't have the language app and that I was a dumbo, dunderhead, bird brain, blockhead, brainless, ignoramus, dunderpate, nincompoop. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, oh my God, I've made my reputation mainly in historical fiction of the Maori kind. <laughs> the matriarch, the dream swimmer, the parihaka woman in my latest book, Sleep Standing. Therefore, isn't it obvious? I was totally unsuited to literature, but I've ended up writing it. If I was you, I wouldn't trust me. I offer this cautionary tale of the man driving through a small New Zealand town, and he hears lovely organ music floating out of a church in a hymn called Sheep May Softly Graze. Now, you know all about that in Christchurch. Well, transfixed, he stops his car and walks in and asks, who is the deceased? And he is told, the butcher. <laughs> no such luck in your case, I'm still here. Not only that, but somebody decided I would be a good diplomat. And so for 14 years, I had a job in Canberra, New York, and Washington, D.C. Now, how the hell did that happen? Speaking of cars, this is what I think happened, and I'm speaking metaphorically about that fabulous character that all writers have, the muse. The muse is for all of us the source of inspiration, our literary inspiration, and the muse is usually a woman. Well, when I was young and handsome and, and into shoplifting, 
I'm speaking metaphorically, mind you, so none of this is true. <laughs> I was on my way home and I came across this car parked at the corner of the street. Its motor was running, its lights were off, its back door opened, and I needed a quick getaway. So it was a Peugeot. I've always loved Peugeots. I get in, man, I want to drive this baby crazy. And there is this beautiful woman in the back seat. Think the French actress Catherine Deneuve. And she looks at me a bit startled and asks, are you the one, mon chéri? And all the while she knows I'm not, but maybe the other guy got caught by the cops and detained. She sighs, taps on the shoulder of the chauffeur driver and says, okay, we make a pink into a silk purse. We? Oui? So I'm that silk purse. It was all a mistake, Madame Deneuve. You should have waited for the other guy. And so my career since 1972 has been a magnificent accident. I've tried to stop the inspiration from passing from Madame Meuse to me, and every time I feel it, you know, that urge to become a literary arsonist, a firebug, I begin to sing, Witty's burning, Witty's burning, fetch the engine, fetch the engine, fire, 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 pour on water, pour on water. But that inspiration keeps burning, combustive, and has done so through 15 novels, seven short story collections, seven musical projects, mainly operas, four films, about 30 non-fiction edited works, and God knows what else. And I mean, I don't go out to win awards and honors. Every time somebody offers one, I go, oh no, because this is all a mistake, error, slip, blunder, faux pas, solecism. I'm being rewarded for my failures. Oh, how can this have happened to such a sweet, innocent man like I am? I've even made it into New Zealand literature's first 15. Writer Philip Temple, when putting together a team that would be the literary equivalents of the All Blacks, thought I should have the number nine jersey at halfback. He had Morris G, Janet Frame, Lloyd Jones, and other luminaries in there. And he said he picked me for scrum half because I was fast on my feet, slippery behind the slum, the scrum. <laughs> and I sold the perfect dummy. I think those are meant to be compliments. But selling the perfect dummy sounds like me. Well, oh where, alas and alack, misericordia stupeto, unero in questa cosa. Lately I have begun feeling that inspiration rising again, the imagination on fire, witty the pyromaniac burning with literary intentions. As my grandson Ben would say whenever he purposefully gets his Thomas the Tank engines to crash into the other trains on his railway set, oh no, Papa, Thomas has crashed. You did it, Papa. So I wonder if you could help me to quell, curb, extinguish, check, suppress, extirpate this tremendous desire to set literature on fire again. Will you help me? Will you be my fire extinguisher? So this side, I want you to start first. And then that side, you know when to come in after witty's burning, witty's burning, and then you come on witty's burning, witty's burning. One, two. Witty's burning, witty's burning, fetch the engine, fetch the engine. Witty's burning, witty's burning. Witty burning, witty burning. You're not going to finish this until this sounds really loud. 
What's happened to you people? Whoa. Well, big help you people are. The inspiration has already turned into a book. You're too late with your water hoses. The book is called Sleep Standing and it has just been launched this week and because it's all your fault, you better fucking buy it. Well, folks, shit happens. Thank you, Witty. Um, it also took me nine years to get my BA. And in fact, the ninth year was the year I did your creative writing class. And I only got one A at university. It was the one that you gave me. So thank you, Witty. <laughs> um, Clementine Ford is one of the bravest writers I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. She's an online sensation, fearless feminist heroine, and scourge of trolls and misogynists everywhere. And also a beacon of hope and inspiration to hundreds of thousands of women and girls. She writes a regular column for Daily Life in Australia, which tackles a multitude of issues facing women today. And her debut book, Fight Like a Girl, is an essential manifesto for feminists new, old, and soon to be. It exposes just how unequal the world continues to be for women. Crucially, it's also a call to arms for all women to rediscover the fury that's been suppressed by a society that still considers feminism a threat. Clementine's Shifting Points of View session tomorrow sold out almost immediately, so we announced a second show on Sunday, and that one sold out even faster. So we're truly fortunate to have her here in Christchurch and here tonight. Please welcome Clementine Ford. Kia koutou katoa, kia koutou katoa. Um, thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you for having me here. I'd like to acknowledge the mana whanua, nai tahu, and the nai tu ahuriri hapu. Um, thank you. Uh, what an honour to be on stage with these fantastic writers and speakers tonight. I uh, simultaneously felt worse and better about myself sitting there listening. Um, I'd also, uh, I'm trying not to apologise for bringing my child to things because unfortunately for a lot of women that's just the reality if we want to work, but I'd like to thank people for being so accommodating for his very exploratory ways right now. Um, thank you especially to Victor for not losing your train of thought. I felt terrible about the fact that he was trying to join you on stage and I, I do apologise for the interruption that was had there. Um, I'm going to go back in time a little bit tonight and talk about one of my, one of the first of my many, many, many failures during my life. I felt a lot of resonance as well listening to everyone speak tonight. I've also been fired from pretty much every job I've ever had. Um, uh, I often felt like the ugly princess in the castle, which is a little bit of the story that I'm going to tell you tonight. Uh, some people would say that this is why I became a feminist, because of course men found me so unattractive. Um, because women don't exist unless men are looking at them, of course. But anyway, here we go. I'm not a particularly dark person. I read Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre as a teenager, but outside of tortured diary entries dealing with all the ways my parents didn't understand me, accompanied by crude drawings of my body that made me look like a heavy water balloon suspended by the neck, I could never really summon the passion for a demanding routine of gothic depression. 
I occasionally wore black, but only because my mother had told me once that it was slimming. Sartorially, I alternated between clothes I either found in vintage stores or in shops that catered mainly to middle-aged men named Gary. This meant a steadily rotating mix of polyester caftans and ill-fitting men's trousers. I imagined the caftans made me seem interesting, while the men's trousers were chosen because they eclipsed the minimal sizing found in the fashion hellholes where women seemed to have no hips and certainly no visible bum crack. <laughs> if I had to choose one word to describe my overall look, it would probably be flammable. In 1996, my family moved from Brisbane to Adelaide. This occurred round about the month of August, meaning not only was I forced to move schools again, but that I had to do it at the start of term four. I was in year 10. I have no idea why my parents hated me and wanted me to be unhappy, but there it is. The first Friday of term four at my new school turned out to be casual clothes day. This meant that instead of checkered summer dresses and straw hats, the schoolyard would be full would be full of girls in low-slung bootleg, bootleg jeans and T-shirts that said things like 99% angel, 1% bitch, or don't touch what you can't afford. The 90s were not a particularly good decade for fashion, which might explain why choker, which might explain why choker necklaces were so popular then, but certainly doesn't explain why they've made a comeback now. I had carefully selected my 10-cell jeans, a cardigan in dusty rose chenille, which was a kind of unattractive wool that seemed to have been made almost entirely out of soft plastic, and my suede Adidas sneakers. It was an outfit that I reasoned would make me be, seem both feminine and edgy. It didn't work, as I'm sure you can imagine. Still, when Jenny Turner turned to me in science class and said, cool shoes, I guess you're kind of a triple J person, hey? I nodded. Yeah, I replied nonchalantly trying to hide the glow that was beginning to burn brightly inside. I didn't want my cardigan to catch a light. I'm pretty into Triple J. I hoped Jenny would never find out the truth, that up until that point, I hadn't been entirely sure whether or not it was pronounced Triple J or just JJJ. <laughs> Most of the time, I listened to old Ella Fitzgerald CDs and Andrew Lloyd Webber show tunes. The only radio station I tuned into was Mix 102.3 which is sort of like an easy-listening radio station. There were two programs I liked, Love Song Dedications, because it made me feel hopeful for the future, and Dr. Feelgood, because it made me feel funny in my downstairs area, <laughs> but also educated and prepared. One day, I hoped to have sexual intercourse. <laughs> I wanted to be ready. At 15, I thought that the person I wanted to eventually end up having said sexual intercourse with was Michael Barton. We were perfect for each other, and had been since the moment he made me laugh outside Miss Prentice's English class with offbeat talk about canned asparagus. His was an abstract humour, and it appealed to my deeply held belief that there were certain kinds of humour only an adolescent spent watching British comedies could prepare you for. Daydreaming became my favourite pastime. Daydreaming about Michael Barton on the bus, daydreaming about Michael Barton during morning house, during recess, after school, at the dinner table where I visualised clearly the day when he too would sit with my family, laughing and joking over one of our many inside jokes. I stole fervent, desperate glances at him during English, delighted at the days he chose to sit facing in my general direction. Yes, secret signal. And tormented on those days, his angle skewed away. 
My best friend Natalie, who was coincidentally also my only friend, and I formed a secret crush club, which just meant we hung out together and discussed in endless and minute detail our respective crushes on boys we would ultimately never have. Michael Barton, distant. Christopher Sanderson, homosexual. But still, I dreamt that Michael Barton might one day take me in his arms and kiss me on the lips. As the end of the school term drew closer, I despaired. What was I to do over the long and arduous summer? Natalie was moving to Port Lincoln, and all I had was my Wendy's job to keep me in the practice of speaking to people outside of my immediate family. <laughs> there was only one opportunity for romance left. Jenny Turner had organised an end-of-year social for all the Year 10s, and the entire grade was in a tizzy about it. It was to take place in the last day of term. In preparation, I spent a good number of class hours envisioning that determiner of all things infinite and life-changing, the final dance. I had the bulk of an 80s childhood worth of research behind me, and I was pinning my hopes on that disco ball daydream in exactly the way John Hughes had taught me to. I fretted over my outfit. It had to be perfect, which was a difficult feat for someone who owned enough cargo wear to build a tent city. I settled on a short black dress, slimming, with stockings and Doc Martens, plus a brown secondhand men's jacket, edgy, and a silk scarf around my neck for a touch of vintage Grace Kelly charm. I looked in the mirror, nailed it, I thought approvingly, <laughs> though I think we can all agree I was probably wrong. <laughs> At school that night, I tentatively entered the small assembly room. It was decorated in brightly drawn posters exclaiming, Year 10 Social, in bubble writing. There were flashing lights placed intermittently around the room, but I tried to avoid those. An old science teacher had once told me that looking straight at burning magnesium for too long would make you blind. Admittedly, this had nothing to do with $12.95 fairy lights from Bunnings, but I just made it a rule to be careful around anything which emitted artificial light. As a chronic hypochondriac, I assumed I would lose my sight one day. I just didn't want it to be before Michael Barton and I had shared in the transformative experience of our first water birth. <laughs> Natalie and I quickly found each other, and alcohol having not yet made its way into our lives as a social lubricant, made an awkward show of dancing together while our eyes furtively scanned the room for our great loves. My eyes quickly locked onto Michael Barton, and my tummy immediately responded by sending a flood of butterflies racing through it. His hair was doing that adorable floppy thing that I liked so much, while the colours of his red and black acrylic jumper really highlighted the worn brown of his eyes. He was standing in the cool corner of the room, that curiously delineated scrap of space that seems to become protected by an invisible force field the moment someone of social rank steps into it. Michael Barton was not of a particularly high rank, but he did have entrance privileges. He was like a backstreet boy, but not Nick. Maybe Howie. <laughs> As the evening progressed, Natalie and I went outside to pore over the developments so far. Despite the scarcity of any such thing, we entertained ourselves by scrutinising matters of importance in great depth. Like, what did their body language mean? And how lucky it was that even though neither of them were talking to us, they weren't exactly talking to other girls either. In Christopher Sanderson's case, this would turn out to be an early clue. <laughs> As we stood there, a boy from my house group approached to ask what we were talking about. Perhaps I was sick of wallowing in action, but I threw caution to the wind and shared my very serious secret with him. 
He promised he would take it to the grave, but I suppose by grave he meant to say, inside to tell everybody and laugh at you behind your back and then in front of your back. I was hit with the full force of his betrayal and my failure, got that in there, the moment I re-entered the porter cabin that functioned as our sophisticated disco hall. The night was turning out just like a John Hughes movie, but it seemed to be finishing at the scene at the end of the second act where the protagonist realises that life is cruel and teenagers are just massive assholes. Inside, I could feel everyone's eyes on me, laughing at me and pitying me. I was mortified. This is what people meant when they wished for the ground to open up and swallow them whole. But then, Michael Barton appeared and stood silent and brooding before me. He leant against the wall, looking at me. This was literally the closest I had ever been to him, and there was a high probability that my excitement was about to render me either irreversibly mute or immaculately pregnant. <laughs> Dare I hope? I stole a glance and re-entered the earthly dimension. Michael Barton was asking me if he could have a word outside. My moment had come. Romance had not failed me. All the disappointing boy crushes I'd endured in my short, but I felt very passionate life, had led me to this. I was to be victorious, kissed for the first time at the school dance. John Hughes was right. I followed Michael Barton to where he stood outside, he with his foot on a bench and head down, me a little way from him and trying to catch his eye. I took a deep breath and began. I had to get the wording just right. So, Michael, I gulped. You've probably heard from people inside that I like you. And, well, interminably long pause. It's true. Michael Barton listened to my awkward declaration and nodded his head. The air crackled with tension. When he kissed me, would I know what to do? Just as I was preparing to lean forward and close my eyes, he stood up, spun on his heel and walked back inside. He hadn't looked at me once. I waited outside, my failure to comprehend the situation, moving me to sit cross-legged on a picnic table in a state of high drama with my head resting heavily in my hands. I hoped beyond hope that Michael Barton would return and reveal that it had all been a dreadful misunderstanding, that he was confused, lost, sensitive. Wasn't that the problem with men, that they just didn't know what they wanted? Weren't they always afraid not of feeling too little, but of feeling too much? The thought comforted me. Somewhere between feeling sorry for myself and sneaking looks at the door for Michael Barton's possible return, I began to float above my body, watching the depressing scene below. I felt curiously satisfied by my observations, seduced by my own torment in the same way that one gains enjoyment from interrupting a furious and genuine flood of tears to go and watch themselves crying in the mirror. But when it became apparent that Michael Barton had no plans to rejoin me and declare the strength of his contradictory love and fear, I knew the only thing I could do would be to walk back into that wretched schoolroom with my head held high and dance the final dance of the night with a smile on my face by myself. This I did. And although it was a struggle on a number of levels to dance happily to Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, <laughs> smile and dance I did. It wasn't until I was safe in bed that, I, that night that I let the deluge out, replaying over and over in my head, in my mind, the horrible scene I had just been part of. It seemed to me like I would never find a boyfriend, because in my silly clothes and awkward skin, I would just never be good enough for them. Life was so cruel. 
Of course, all those boys live in the suburbs now and have cars or motorbikes for their Facebook profile picture. So I guess the point is that even though you might not know how life is going to turn out when you're a 15-year-old dork with a wardrobe full of shiny plastic flammable sacks, at least you probably won't end up married to a wanker. And the older I get, the more I realize that that's pretty much the best thing you can ask for. John Hughes should make a movie about that. Kia ora koutou katoa. Thank you, Clementine. We've all had a Michael Barton in our lives. Um, now to our final speaker, uh, Glenn Colhoun is a doctor, poet, and teacher. His first poetry collection, The Art of Walking Upright, won Best First Book of Poetry at the 2000 Montana New Zealand Book Awards. In 2003, he won the poetry category and also became the first poet to be awarded the coveted Montana Reader's Choice Award. He was recipient of the short-lived Prize in Modern Letters, which was funded by a Las Vegas millionaire and was then, which was then also one of the richest literary prizes in the world for a single book. He currently works with young people on the Kapiti Coast, and his latest book is Late Love, Sometimes Doctors Need Saving as Much as Their Patients, published by BWB in one of their excellent text series. In it, he writes, I have fought a running battle with medicine for much of my career. I've wanted to leave it for poetry. This is the story of how that has come to change for me and how both these worlds have at last arrived at some sort of reconciliation. Please welcome Glenn Colhoun. Kia ora everyone. Um, it's wonderful to be here. What a wonderful hall um, to read in. It feels full of ghosts um, in the ceiling and on the walls. Um, and I feel immediately um, the biggest of failures, of course, because I thought when Rachel asked us to do this um, that we weren't allowed to read notes, um, that we had to speak off the cuff, um, come up with a response. So I have used some poems uh, in my presentation and I've committed them to memory. And now um, I didn't bring any notes except for a few little bits and pieces and now I have to recite them by memory. Um, and I fear I will walk the tightrope of failure in front of you for no good reason, but for not listening carefully to my instructions in the first place. Um, so I'm already way off. Um, having said that, let me begin. When Tom and Elizabeth took the farm, the bracken made their bed and cordoodle the magpies said Tom's hand was strong to the plough Elizabeth's lips were red and cordoodle the magpies said year in year out they worked the farm while the pines grew overhead and doodle, the magpie said. But all the beautiful crops soon went 
to the mortgage man instead in Kordudlaro, Wardle the magpies said. Elizabeth's dead now. It's years ago old Tom went mad in the head. In Kordudlaro, Wardle the magpies said. The farms are still there. Mortgage corporations couldn't give it away. And Cordle Oodle Ardle Wardle Doodle, the magpies say. Poetry exists because words fail. Words are wonderful, of course, but at the end of the day, they are exquisite hints, a nudge in the ribs, a push, a shove. A poem will not give you the time of day or forecast the weather. It will not haggle over prices or pay the rent. A poem simply cries, and at the heart of that cry is always a demand to explain our magnificent aloneness and a reply to that aloneness at the same time. Words only surround poems and launch them like rockets, dragging them like tractors to the pad scaffolding their crouch lighting their fuses and crumbling to blackened frame and ash on the page after liftoff. In space, their remains fall away from their poems like booster rockets in slow motion, and what continues floats true and unspeakable between us, but is known in an instant. It strikes me that failure is not only a way of learning to do things better. Failure is inherent in being human. It is in our language. It is in our cells. It is in our throb. It is in our ache. And it is in our reach. Failure is what? the angels envy. Poetry is only about failure, about reaching for something that cannot quite be touched. The year I was born, Dennis Glover published The Magpies. It was written not very far away from here, in North Canterbury, in an old house one weekend. Alan Kernow was there. He wrote Wild Iron the same weekend. Sometime, some time ago, I began to write a collection of Pākehā oral poems. I was inspired by Māori oral poetry, and I wanted to know if a hymn could hold a mōteatea, or a sea shanty could stare down a haka. I searched for a long time, 
to find a love story to sit at the heart of them, the way that love stories so often sit at the heart of Motea Eventually, I found it in the magpies and in the characters of Tom and Elizabeth. If medicine and poetry have taught me anything in the last 25 years, it is that imaginary lives are as real as those made of flesh and blood. And so, tonight, in the time I have left, I would like to sing you two very Pākehā mōteatea. To both honour an old poem they are intended to sing back to, and to honour this landscape it grew out of. I will sing to you badly, with failing words of an old longing. From this brokenness, I wonder perhaps if the dead will rise. And I wonder too if an old cry after a long and perilous journey will thump into your chests, haul itself up on unsteady legs and leave its footsteps trailing across you into the distance. Tom to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, what whisper rises in the spit of rain against the oak and barn, their wild iron? Our banging hearts, Elizabeth, your ready lips, the pines pine for their fingertips, wish only this, Elizabeth. Their bind and branch you shall to give Elizabeth my writhe and heft my soil sweet my daily bread were you so I would take you daily to the plough, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, our song outlasts the banker's nib, the bracken bed. Who else can bear the weight we bear? The magpies bear the weight we bear. The magpies share. He lives a bit.
Elizabeth, 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 Elizabeth to Tom. Oh, Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? Milk the cattle, feed the hogs. Tell me, Tom, will you be long? Oh, Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? Oh, Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? To the tavern, to the grog. Tell me, Tom, will you be long? Oh, Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? Where have you gone, my Tom, my Tom? To the doctor, to the dogs, what a way. To make a bob, oh Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? Where have you gone, my Tom, my Tom? To the churchyard, to the gods. Tell me, Tom, will you be long? Oh, Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? Oh, Tom, my Tom, where have you gone? Well, that's it, everybody. Um, I had no idea when I asked these amazing speakers to come here and talk about the role of failure in their lives that we would have such an incredible array of stories and personal insights and songs. Um, so I just want to say quickly that uh, UBS is selling books by um, most of the speakers here, and please come and buy them, and the writers will sign them. But in the meantime, I'm just going to get everybody back up on stage so that we can say thank you to them properly. And so please welcome back Witi Ihimaira, Victor Roger, Hannah O'Regan, Glenn Calhoun, Leanne Dalziel, and Clementine Ford.